From Sandwich Community TV, I'm Manx Techie Magyar, and this is Blindside. The entire audio interviews that I've cut to make my short form video documentaries. In the summer of 2019, I worked with Heather Bish on a documentary on familial DNA research. In June of, on June 27, 2000, Heather Bish's sister, Molly Bish, was abducted and kidnapped in the Worcester area. She wasn't found for a couple years later. The culprit of this crime is still yet to be found. And so, Heather Bish is attempting to change legislation in order to allow investigators to have more tools in order to find criminals of these crimes. So, you wanted to kind of introduce yourself? And... Sure. Uh, my name is Heather Bish Martin. I am the oldest sister of Molly Ann Bish. She was a 16 year old lifeguard in 2000 who was abducted and murdered. Molly was found three years later in 2003 by a hunter who had been out in the woods and found uh, scraps of a blue bathing suit. Um, after that, one of the largest and most expensive searches in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts occurred. It was unique because it was designed by Dr. Anne-Marie Myers, who is a forensic anthropologist who actually um, worked in the medical examiner's office previously and um, helped actually dig up the Whitey Bulger bones. So she had uh, a great deal of experience and she conducted a sort of a more anthro anthropological search of uh, the area where Molly was found. So we were able to recover um, quite a few of her bones. Um, we were not able to identify her right away. We started the search the end of May. It wasn't until June 9th that we identified it as Molly because we found her skull and were able to identify her teeth. Um, the area where Molly was taken was only two and a half miles from our home. Uh, about five miles from the pond where she was abducted. And um, as a result of the abduction and how the, the um, law enforcement reacted to a 16-year-old being missing from her place of employment from the pond and where she was found in the woods where animals had sort of ravaged the area, uh, we had very little evidence, very little DNA evidence. However, we have some. And because of that, we've worked really hard to be able to provide law enforcement with the tools necessary to use that DNA to be able to find this person. We know that people who commit sexual crimes often reoffend. We uh, most recently, if you look at the Golden Gate case, I mean, this man committed 45, over 100 rapes and murders. Um, so, so those kind of violent crimes tend to happen again. Um, oftentimes they become more violent. Um, someone who might sexually assault someone one time might turn to murder the next. Um, so, so our mission has always been to identify how we can get people like that off the streets and how we can find particularly this person who, who harmed Molly. Uh, but most importantly, how can we help law enforcement in their efforts to get these guys. Um, unfortunately, it's not like the TV shows. Um, it doesn't happen rapidly. In fact, uh, the national database for DNA matching um, for criminals in the, in the penal system, you actually have to be able to identify that person in that specific area. So you have to say, okay, it's, you know, John Smith in 
um, you know, Warren, Massachusetts, or whatever. Uh, so that that is very specific. It's not sort of a you know, you're putting this in there and seeing what hits. And so uh, that complicates it. You know, if there's someone under the radar, which is often the case in some of these unresolved cases, you really need something more, some, some other tool. Uh, in Molly's case particularly, we've always said we're one piece away from getting this guy. We've had so many people come forward and share information, share stories, um, help us to try to figure out what happened that day and give us their, um, you know, they might even turn in people that they know uh, that they've been close to. We've, we've learned that over time relationships change. People who were in relationships together aren't maybe under that fear or aren't um, feeling as loyal to each other, so they'll come forward. You know, it's been 19 so years. people have reserved information that you realized in the past, and as their connection to certain people have probably gotten worse or whatever, then they come out with more information? Absolutely, absolutely. We've held tip campaigns over the last uh, 19 years where we've had um, private investigators or professors of criminal justice who may not be as intimidating as sort of the state police um, who would, you know, take a hotel room during the day and, and um, people would come in and, and give information. Um, it's been amazing how many people have come forward with pictures, with maps, with critical pieces. We, we have a large pool of people of interest. It's just that we're missing this one last piece. Yeah. Um, and so our efforts have turned to this familial DNA testing as a tool for law enforcement. And this has um, been something that's been happening across the country and really having some incredible uh, wins and successes. Uh, there was a 45-year-old case solved um, in the Midwest last week. Twelve states have this um, in their laws now that, that law enforcement can use this as a tool. Uh, many states are looking at it in the legislature right now. So we drafted a bill um, a couple weeks ago and are hoping that Massachusetts legislators will uh, get behind this, these efforts, because law enforcement is willing to support the, is willing to use this tool and they are willing to support these efforts to solve the crimes that they have. We don't have a national or a statewide unresolved case unit. And an unresolved case um, is sort of what you call a cold case. Um, a few, quite a few years ago, my dad was working with the Worcester County District Attorney, Joe Early, and he said, you know, Joe, saying cold means, it kind of makes you think like nobody's working on it and it's just sort of sitting on a shelf. And, and the reality is that they're generally getting information on these cases. It might not be as often as um, you know a case that just happened yesterday, but they're still working on these cases. They still pick them up. You'll see in some of these Netflix shows or, or on the or on the news um, that they they pick up these cases and they say, okay, what can we do now with the DNA that we have available, um, or that wasn't you know something that they could test before. Uh, our advances in science have have just grown astronomically, so that ability to um, look at these older cases and, and, and solve them possibly is, is really grown. So we um, talked to Joe and said, what about unresolved, just so we're not giving that sort of cold um, 
stigma to it. And so we, we very, we're very interested. You know, Worcester's been a, a leading city in, in designing unresolved case units. They, the city has their own unresolved case unit. Our state police um, in Worcester County have an unresolved case unit. But it is not something that is across the Commonwealth in other counties. It's not something that's across the country. So as a result, you have these um, investigators that are working on current cases, but also have, have these piles of, of unresolved cases. And, and there are quite, quite a few. And even more, we have unresolved sexual assaults all over the country that we haven't been able to catch these guys. And often, as I said, they are repeat offenders. So for me, looking at this familial DNA as a, as a tool for law enforcement is it's a no-brainer. It's, it's something that's going to help families get the resolution for their crime. And it's also going to get these bad guys off the street. You know, if they are under the radar and they're living next to you or I or, or our sister or brother and their young children, we want them to be in jail. We want the, our kids to be safe. We want our friends and our families to be safe. We, um, we don't want anyone to be at any potential risk. Uh, so, so I think using this as a tool is uh, in, in our best interest. I know that there's some pushback on, um, you know, the privacy rights, but I think that in today's society, that's sort of advancing so f so quickly. And um, you know, I Google something on on my computer, and it's showing up on my Facebook. Do you want to buy this <laughs> these blue shoes or something? So I think our privacy is kind of um, you know, it's, it's, it's an important factor for us always to be thinking about. Um, I know MIT uh, just established a social um, humanistic uh, computer program where they're actually looking at the social implications of uh, how we're using computers and, and social media. So I think some of these big names, um, people in academia, are looking at this. But meanwhile, we need to get the bad guys off the street, and we need to protect our communities. And so while we let um, the experts and the academics and the um, computer uh, geniuses figure out how we can look at our safety, I think that all of us um, should, should sort of look into our own um, our own sense of what's right and say, well, you know, I don't mind if you look at my DNA, if it's going to help solve a crime or it's going to connect you to someone that might have committed a crime. I don't want to <clears throat> keep someone um, in my family off the streets if, they, if they've committed a crime. Um, I, I'm willing to say, yeah, they need to do the, do the time if they've, if they've done the crime. So I think um, most of us are willing to make those concessions as far as privacy. Uh, I think the bigger um, deal is being able to have those tools to help law enforcement and to help families and to, um, again, just put our, put our communities in safer places because we don't know um, the level of reoffense. Can you take a step back and talk about the the, uh, the, the unresolved case situation and sure. dealing with that among police as far as that sort of dynamic? Is it just because I'm interested to know? Is it difficult to kind of? I can I can imagine that police have a ton of things to worry about, and then Absolutely. they have these building unresolved cases. And how is that relationship that you have with certain police departments? Are they really 
good to work with? Or are they kind of neglecting? Or well, law, law enforcement and the criminal justice system is, is much different than education. I'm a, a teacher, so I'm used to having meetings with the autism specialist and the reading specialist and the, and the fourth grade teacher. And you know, we all come together as a team and sort of figure out how to help this kiddo. And law enforcement, it doesn't work that way necessarily. Um, with Molly's case, we were dealing with a small town. Um, we live in a, we're from a very small town in central Massachusetts. Our police officers did not know how to handle a missing persons case. Um, in fact, last year we were working on a bill with Juan Amadeus about training, mandatory training for law enforcement, and it sort of fizzled out when she wasn't reelected. But it is actually not in um, the academy. There isn't any, you know, they sort of glance over it. But if you're in small town South Dakota or small town West Virginia or small town Massachusetts, your officers might not know what to do when a, a child goes missing. So Molly disappeared within eight minutes. She was taken from her, her lifeguard position and my mother wasn't notified for three hours. S statistically, 76% of children who are abducted by a stranger are dead within three hours. So now that we know, in hindsight, uh, Molly was probably dead by the time we even started looking for her. That's something that our family has to live with every day. And I know our investigators do too. I know that they, they recognize um, the missteps that were taken. Um, the bias, you know, Molly was a 16-year-old kid. Um, people said she's off with her friends, she's, you know, over here doing this, she, and, and, or she drowned. They didn't actually look at the behavior of the victim. Molly was not a, a lake swimmer. She um, was much more of a chlorine pool, nothing squishy in my toes kind of swimmer. Um, on the other hand, my brother, who had previously held the job, would do laps every day. So they're just different people. And they didn't really look at that. <clears throat> Molly wouldn't have been in, Molly wouldn't have drowned because she wouldn't have gone swimming in that lake. She just, you know, unless she had to save somebody. Right. She, she really wasn't um, interested in getting in there. Um, so again, those missteps, her shoes were there. She wouldn't walk around without her shoes. Where, where would she go without shoes? Her beeper back in 2000, which we didn't quite have, all have cell phones back then, so she had one of those beepers, um, was still there. So the likelihood of her taking off with her friends was really minimal, and, and anyone could have seen that right away had they known the victim or spoke to us. Um, so we were, when at, by by the three hour time period, we were in panic because we knew Molly was, would not leave. She was very nervous about swimming lessons starting that day. Um, she was a responsible kid. She played three sports. She was on the honor roll. She loved her job. So um, there were a lot of missteps. And so law enforcement, we've gone around the country for 19 years really talking to law enforcement about when kids go missing. Um, Arlington, Massachusetts has a wonderful program. Um, they have a lot of transient kids in that community and they're out there and they're looking for those kids. They don't care if they don't. They're not the probation officer's daughter like my, my, my sister was. They are just kids that you know might be living in a foster care, might be in a home, and they're still looking for them. So, you know, when we talk about Molly and, and what happened to Molly, we're talking about a, a kid from a middle class family with two parents, very loved, you know, friends that 
you know, were looking for her, a community that came out and just tore apart the town looking for her. Um, but there's kids that disappear every day that don't have families. Uh, and so I think about them because they're at risk, because they're still kids and there are bad people out there uh, that will take advantage of them and hurt them. And so in my efforts, you know, obviously I'm always um, at my heart trying to um, fix what happened with Molly, but I also want for the future all the kids, you know, despite circumstances and, and where they live or who's protecting them to be safe. And, and so when we go back to this unresolved case unit, they, um, they didn't have that back then um, when Molly disappeared. And so they, it's just when tips come in, they'll, they'll pick it up again. Or if there's um, you know, a particular uh, detective that's interested or knows about a certain kind of um, DNA testing that's become available, he might pick up the case. But other than that, there's no um, procedure or policies on how to you know, review cases. There's no um, sort of rotation of, of looking at these cases. Uh, that's up to the departments. That's up to the, the heads of, of those units. Uh, so I do think that uh, uh, District Attorney Joe Early was truly a leader when he put together the unresolved case unit in Worcester. They have it at the um, city level and then they have it at the state police level. And they do, they just keep going through the cases and reviewing the cases that are you know older and they look at what they can do for um, the newer DNA testing that's available. Um, and they look at, you know, again, re-interviewing uh, re suspects, like looking at that um, piece of how relationships change and how they might be able to get some information they might not have been able to get before. Um, Detect, uh, District Attorney Gluni in uh, Western Mass was able to solve um, a case, uh, Lisa Ziegert, last year or two years ago by the same techniques, just picking up this case using, um, and what he used was uh, the, what, similar to what they did in Brockton where they, they had sort of these elements of this person, this DNA profile of this perpetrator. And this lab in Texas, Parabon, um, was able to build sort of a profile picture using that DNA um, so that they can put that picture out there and say, hey, does anyone know this guy? Did they see this guy near you know, Lisa Zieger that day? And sort of use the visualization to, to help aid people's memories and, and trigger any thoughts. And they were able to make an arrest in that case um, using that technique of um, DNA profiling and testing. So I think Parabon solved five unresolved cases so far using that kind of technology. And this is just a different avenue. This is just matching with the familial testing. But again, another tool for law enforcement to, to get these guys. The um, person in Lisa Ziegert's case didn't have a criminal history, so they they didn't have, um, they didn't, or they weren't able to identify him before and, and match it. Again, with the CODIS system, you have to have, you have to have that person in mind. If, you, if he's not on your radar, you're not going to make the match. So um, there has to be other tools for law enforcement to use to be able to try to find out if they don't have a lot of evidence in some of these cases. Can you go into the actual process of how that so I kind of understand 23andMe, and you, you, everyone has a DNA data bank of everything, but 
what if this, any sort of perpetrator, what if they're just completely under the radar? How would that kind of sure. work with that? So, so there's sort of these warehouses that make agreements um, from these um, different familial DNA sites. So 23andMe may or may not um, make a contract with the law enforcement or with this warehouse. And it has to be a contract with law enforcement. There's regulation and rules. And um, what they do is they, they say, we have this partial match. Can we put it in and see if there's any relatives matching this DNA? And so um, with some of these cases, there was one in uh, the Midwest that <clears throat> was from the 70s. And there was a couple that had been murdered in their home in, um, in California. And they, they put this uh, match in, and they met, and they caught this guy, and he hadn't been charged with any crimes, but they, they were able to do it through the cousin. So if there's a familial DNA, what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll match it, and then they'll say, oh, okay, was um, this person in that general area? Who's in this person's relative pool that lived in California at the time or lived by Warren, Massachusetts? And did he know the victim? Was, did he have any, you know, did he know the area where the victim was found or where the victim was taken? And so they do some of that old school um, investigative work. And then they kind of go undercover. If they, once they identify a person, there was one case where there was twins, um, twin men that one was in jail and the brother was out and he had committed these, these rapes. Um, so they were able to, you know, and, and again, the twin DNA is so similar, but once they went undercover and you know somebody throws their Dunkin' Donuts cup out or or their cigarette the the investigators will will take that and they'll match it to theirs and if it's an exact match then they can get a um, a warrant and and further um, complete their investigation so it, it's it's again using some of those old school techniques with our scientific scientific advances that can sort of narrow down because again like in, in Molly's case so there, there was that time lapse there was a victimology that wasn't looked at and then there was all these characters that came forward there was um, you know these sexual uh, deviants in the area there was um, people who there was a, the boyfriend, the, you know, Molly's boyfriend, to me, was probably one of the second biggest victims. Here's a 16-year-old kid that, you know, just kind of had a family that um, the police didn't particularly care for. And so automatically he was um, sort of looked at right away. And, and um, he, he ended up passing away in a, in a tragic accident years later. But, I mean, the, how can a 16-year-old kid um, you know, have that kind of pressure, yeah. <clears throat> you know? And so, again, <clears throat> we talk about that reaction time going in there, that, and the, mostly because the reaction time in Molly's case was so um, problematic for us. But now, because of that, we're here 19 years later trying to use these advanced DNA things to just find this person out of this whole pool of characters. We've had so many, um, people, persons of interest, come up over the years, and often people will say to me, well, what do you really think, Heather? Like, do you think you can identify the person? And I, if I, if I could, I would, you know? <clears throat> I am. Um, I'm not a psychic, and I, I don't have that sort of 
um, ability to, to decide. There are so many that have these circumstantial pieces. Um, there was a, a man a few years ago, he's passed away now, but he had been in jail, you know, he was convicted of, of rape. He had been stalking someone in the area. He fished at, at Cummins Pond. Um, he was an informant for the police, involved in all these drug things. So um, I'm thinking, oh, this looks like a bad guy. But then we had another bad guy that was in, in Florida who had actually murdered his, his girlfriend. Yeah, so we've had so many. It's hard for me to, I, I wish that I could say, oh, it's, it's definitely this guy. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know who it could be. And my mission is just to try to find the right guy that it really is. And if science can lead me to that, then I think that's the best avenue to follow. So do you think you could talk about a little bit about the, you know, and I don't think it's fair for a lot of people to, because I'm sure a lot of people don't understand the DNA testing, but some of the, like why, why are people having pushback on it, I guess, is, is one of my questions. And okay. sort of the argument against why they should have pushback. Okay. Where do you go? All right. I think some of the pushback on the familial DNA testing is as, is as a result of the privacy concerns. So when you're putting in a match to match a, f a family member, you're sort of, and, and if it is a true match to say somebody's cousin committed this crime, you are kind of violating their privacy in, in knowing and, and having their DNA. So what do you do with their DNA after? Um, after you've connected them to their, let's just say their cousin, Johnny Smith. Um, so I think that those people, that, that group of people who are being matched from um, have those concerns like, what are you doing with my DNA? Are you holding it? Are you taking it? Are you keeping it? And I think very um, quickly we would say that that would be thrown away or, or um, not used anymore. Um, once they find the match, they're going to focus on that match piece and not on the connecting pieces. And I think you know some people might feel violated in that. Oh, you had my DNA to connect my cousin to this crime, and I didn't want to rat my cousin out. I'm not a rat, kind of kind of thing. So I think there's that concept to overcome as well. Uh, but I always go back to what's for the greater good. So I understand that privacy concern and, and the feeling of violation, but the greater good is that this person committed a crime and they have to be held accountable for that particular crime and we also need to know if they've committed other crimes. Uh, and we need to keep other, other people safe. Are they potentially at risk to continue um, hurting, hurting other people? Mm -hmm. And we know that, uh, like I said, sexual offenses and violence tend to get deeper. They get more violent. They get more often. Um, so, so it is. It's dangerous. It's a. It's a real danger to our society. So, if we have a tool to sort of get those dangerous people off the street, I think those young women who are going to bars in Boston don't have to be as afraid anymore because maybe there'll be less bad guys out there looking for them. It isn't fair in, in our country, in our times, and in our, you know, where we are today that women should be afraid to be alone outside having, when they're having fun celebrating a birthday or a success story. Um, it just isn't fair. 
Do you mind if I just fix your mic real quick? No. Nope. Just, like, just pulling it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so, kind of moving forward into a next area, like what what do we have to do now? Do we just have to push legislation? Do we have to convince the public as well to vote on these? I think we start with our legislators. I think um, if this is something that you believe in, I would um, advocate and and ask you to call your legislator and say um, there's a bill being put forward by Senator Ann Gobi and Representative Todd Smola from Central Massachusetts who um, are recommending that law enforcement have the, this tool available to them as a resource for crime um, and that they, and ask them to support that. Um, we have a lot of legislators that have um, a lot of experience understanding how uh, difficult the job of law enforcement is and I think in our, again in our, in our society today we really need to support law enforcement as much as possible. Their jobs are not easy. They've become more and more dangerous and um, if, if they can have tools to again get these bad guys off the street to make not only our community's lives safer but their lives safer. They're the ones who have to go after these guys and they need to um, really have all the tools at their, um, at their availability to be able to get these guys. Um, yeah, I don't know, if, is there anything kind of else you want to talk about on the topic um, as far as? I don't think so. I yeah. think um, I covered that. Um, so I guess yeah. is there another thing as far as like moving forward in the future? Like I've never done any DNA tests, like familiar testing stuff like that. Do you? Is it an ideal place that everyone kind of contributes by doing that because it just expands the network to everyone? Absolutely. I think um, you know there there are a lot of free sites out there that will match your DNA and tell you um, if you have family in the area. Um, my father, for example, didn't know his biological father, so we didn't have any connection to his um, biological family. So that would have been an interesting way for me to connect with my, my dad's family. Um, we actually never never did that, uh, but I did do 23 in, in me because my mother's mother had um, some sort of, you know, family lore about our, our nationality. So I was, you know, interested in that. And I think we all are interested in, in seeing where we come from and what our history is and um, sort of what makes us individually ourselves. And I think that's an important thing to sort of know as we move forward, especially, again, in our society as we make these medical advances too. What are um, some of our cultures are more at risk for, risk for certain diseases and being able to be preempt, preemptive about that um, I think is important. So I, I don't think it's ever a bad thing and uh, if you are afraid of privacy I would say that uh, I don't know of any cases in the country that anyone's ever been convicted wrongly um, by DNA. <laughs> so I think that if anything DNA has exonerated people um, who have been convicted wrongly. I know the Innocence Project 
um, is one of the strongest uh, advocacy groups using DNA to exonerate people who've been convicted of crimes. So I don't think um, that it, ha it, it is a, as risky as it is sometimes um, sort of spoken about. I think when you look at you know, the pieces of it, you'll see that it's a greater, it's for the greater good and there's much more you can learn personally from your own DNA, familial testing, and the greater good of being able to have this out there for others to um, utilize if they need to. I mean, it's amazing that if you said that there's never really been a false accusation using <laughs> the DNA testing that we shouldn't even be like projecting. You know, because I think a lot of times you project these kind of irrational fears of mm -hmm. report or anything like that that are just fiction that kind of make us fear what could happen. Right. And and I guess like is there is like so who gets control? Is that like any sort of complication right now as far as well I think who owns um, the DNA and who owns the rights to the Right. And I think if you the the law enforcement will make a contract with the with the certain company mm -hmm. and they will look at the, and they'll get a hit. Now if they get a hit in it, it's it could be a false positive hit and they'll say, oh, it could be, or it might, it's not a strong match, it might be, and, and they have to really work that. They can't um, go arrest that person or you know, hold up this family and say, someone in this family did this. You know, they really have to have some actual information. And again, that comes back to the real investigative work. Who's in that area? Who was in Warren, Massachusetts? Who was working in Warren, Massachusetts? Who went to Cummins Pond? Did they know Molly Bish? Did they have a relationship with the victim? So, you know, if someone's been living in Montana and was um, at their job on June um, you know, 27, 2000, or was getting married that day, and there's truly no actual connection, they're gonna look and say, hmm, can we further do this DNA? What, what's in the circle? And that information's all confidential. That's all within law enforcement. And, there, and, and in these bills or these laws that have been developed, there's strict criteria of confidentiality and, and criminality if you violate those confidential pieces. Um, so I think that it is pretty safe. I think that uh, the people that are doing this work take it very seriously and they know that that this is a huge, huge difference for families. Um, you, if you just put in familial DNA um, solved cases, you'll, you'll have a whole list on your Google um, on, on all these cases every single day that are, are being solved. So it's really fascinating. Um, really interesting. I mean, even if you put it into uh, YouTube, you'll see all kinds of stories that um, news companies across the country have have done on, on all these cases. It's just really an exciting time to see. Um, I, you know, again, I think about the families. <clears throat> My parents are getting older, and they've recently retired, and you know, I think they're starting to think like maybe they won't know who did this to Molly, and for me, I, I I hope that they do. I hope that they can sort of put all the scary stories um, away in their head and just know, okay, this, this person did this and you know, we're never gonna get Molly back and it's not gonna fix what happened to Molly, but it will um, make us not as scared anymore. You know, we've been living you know, with this scary person out there, I mean, who would want to harm a 16-year-old girl and, and sort of leave her in the woods on the side of the road 
to get eaten by a bobcat or wild bears and animals, I mean, that's a monster. And that scares us every day. And we are not just scared for us, but we're scared what he's going to do to somebody else and what other family is going to have to suffer at this, this guy's hands. And so for us, I think we would feel better knowing when we leave this world that he's not going to harm anybody else. Fortunately, Heather Bish passed legislation to allow law officials to use DNA familial research for future cases and past ones as well. She's right now promoting the new law and spreading awareness of her sister, other cases, and hopes of preventing future ones. Blindside is a Sandwich Community TV podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite platform or visit us directly at www.sandwichcommunitytv.org so you can stay up to date with all the newest content. Thanks for listening.